Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back for part two of our two-part exploration of the unicorn and its mighty horn. That's right. Now, I want you to imagine yourself in a, in a medieval scenario. Robert, I know you're always game for that. All right, let's do it. Okay, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a medieval uh, individual, uh, world lit only by fire, uh, probably not that clean. Let's do it. Well, you're, you're, think of yourself as a young Viking. You're okay. going to be a young Viking on a sea voyage in maybe the early Middle Ages, and you bravely sail the icy waters of the Arctic. Your head's full of Norse mythology about icebound monsters and beasts that could lie waiting behind the icebergs of the Great North. And one day on this boreal voyage, you look out over the water And maybe a hundred yards out, you see among gaps in the pack ice a sight you cannot possibly explain, dueling swords reaching just out of the water. Ah. So you see dozens of blades crossing and scraping one another in battle, poking just out of the waves as if there are knights or Vikings or whatever with spears and sabers fighting one another, maybe as some kind of like icy mare people out there. So – Obviously, you're thinking, what could that be? But, of course, the captain of the boat, being a little more experienced than you, says, boys, we're rich. <laughs> now, why would that be? Well, I'm guessing because the those uh, creatures over there, they seem to have something like a unicorn horn on them uh, that's going to be uh, worth a lot of money to uh, various collectors, uh, magicians, etc., That is right. We are rich, boys, for the horn of the unicorn is worth more than its weight in gold. And for buyers of fraudulent unicorn horns in the Middle Ages in Europe, that was absolutely true. In medieval and early modern Europe, Vikings were running a terrific scam (laughs) trading in fake unicorn tusks that were literally worth more than their weight in gold. Uh, So I was reading a 2005 New York Times article by one William J. Broad who writes about how in the 16th century, Queen Elizabeth of England uh, was gifted a possession of a narwhal tusk and and narwhal tusks of the time were valued at about 10,000 pounds, which he writes was roughly the cost of an entire castle. Oh, wow. So like one tusk you basically get a castle with. Uh, Broad also writes that there's an Austrian legend that Kaiser Karl V paid down the nation's national debt with two unicorn tusks. (laughs) But these tusks were being brought down from somewhere up in the north by Vikings and being sold to the rich and gullible of Europe. What was going on? What were these tusks poking up out of the water that was allowing the Vikings to run this beautiful scam? Well, this was not the horn of the fabled unicorn. It was the tusk of the narwhal. Ah, yes. Now, the narwhal might very well be, I would say, the most unicorn-like animal without legs. Yeah, it is It is the, the creature that has this long kind of spirally horn uh, or what appears to be a horn uh, mm-hmm. when you look at it with the unicorn myth, uh, you know, uh, trolloping around your head. It, it is the only creature that has something like that horn. And it goes great with the older stories of the unicorn. Like we, we talked in the last episode about the ancient world stories of the unicorn that had like a unicorn that was two cubits long, like mm-hmm. gigantic, you know, at least three feet. Actually, narwhal horns can get much longer than that. So a narwhal is a marine mammal. It's a porpoise in the carnivorous order of Odontoceti or the toothed whales. And narwhal 
narwhals live exclusively up in the Arctic, up around Greenland and northern Canada, so they're not going to be normally recognized by the folk of Europe unless they are, say, uh, you know, travelers in the northern beyond or they're, they're very learned in the, uh, the stories of travelers of the north. And they're actually best recognized for these tusks, which show a classic unicorn-like helical growth pattern. You mentioned there was a spiral texture to them. And these tusks can grow up to almost three meters or about nine feet long. If you just try to picture that in your head, like the, this is a unicorn horn that's taller than any human. Yeah, and you can de- you can definitely see how this may have influenced some of those depictions of unicorns. We mentioned how in some, some paint, especially our modern uh, paintings and artistic uh, depictions of unicorns, you see a shorter horn. Yeah. But in some of these medieval tapestries, it is like a narwhal horn. It is like a javelin. Yeah, just gigantic, as mm-hmm. long as the thing's body. The scientific name of the narwhal is Monodon monoceros, and given previous <laughs> Greek etymology discussions, it's pretty obvious where the name comes from here, but Monodon means one tooth. And Monoceros means one horn. So it's literally pretty much the sea unicorn, the unicorn whale. And according to the Arctic ecologist Dr. Kristen Ledra, the uh, the actual word narwhal, I didn't know this before reading some of her work, it comes from the Norse prefix nar, which means corpse, huh. and then val, which means whale. So the narwhal literally means the corpse whale. And this comes from how they apparently looked to these Norse explorers or the Vikings sailing around in the northern seas. They would see the speckled kind of coloration patterns on the narwhal and think it looked like a washed up dead body or a drowned sailor. Huh. That is fascinating because they do – the narwhal does look kind of ghastly, especially if you compare it to something like a, a beluga whale, which seems to have been just carved out of, uh, out of, out of, out of marble. So white and pure, you know? Yeah, in the last episode, we were talking about how many of the ancient descriptions of unicorns uh, describe them as much more colorful. You know, they're like purple or Mm -hmm. black and red and yellow and orange. And I I like that idea of the very colorful unicorn. I don't know why it is that we've ended up with the modern picture of the unicorn being this bleach white, you know, bone colored kind of creature. I mean, the the only thing I can think is that we kind of merged our idea of the perfect unicorn with... The, uh, with the with the worship of the white horse is the 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 the, the white horse being the the ultimate in uh, equine beauty. Well, I happen to prefer more colorful horses as well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you've got these porpoises, these marine mammals dwelling up in the Arctic with these tusks, and the tusks are found mostly on males, also occasionally on females. And in bygone days, this tusk was often harvested and sold on the magic market as a unicorn horn. And here's actually my favorite fact about the narwhal's tusk. If you look up pictures of the narwhal's face, you might notice something that doesn't quite line up with the unicorn uh, iconography usually, which is that the unicorn's got the horn right in the middle of its head, right? It's above the eyes, poking straight out from the middle. You'll notice that the tusk of the narwhal doesn't actually grow straight out from the middle of the face like a unicorn's horn does. Instead, it is off-center, emerging from one side of the face, not above the eyes, but below the eyes. Hmm. Hmm. Why is that? Well, there's actually a very good reason. Here's another clue. Occasionally, narwhals can be found with two tusks growing side by side. This is very rare, but it does occasionally happen. Why does that happen? 
The answer is that the narwhal's tusk is not a horn at all. It is a single, gigantic, overgrown tooth, a canine or premolar tooth, which grows straight outward, punctures through the narwhal's upper lip. So it's like that illustration from The Simpsons when Lisa <laughs> is shown, you know, the book of British teeth. Yes. Um, where the tooth is like growing up through the head. That's literally what's going on here. The narwhal's tooth grows straight out, punctures through the lip, and then goes nine feet out in front of it. This is literally a mammal with one gigantic forward-facing fang growing in a counterclockwise spiral, poking through the skin. I I love it, and I wish our movie vampires were more like that. That is the <laughs> fang world I want. Well, this reminds me of the uh, the Babarusa. The Babarusa. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, the, the Babarusa, the, the, the deer pig, uh, if you will, uh, the, the males have uh, their, their tusks growing out of the, uh, the top of their snout and curling uh, back over. And these are, these are canine tusks uh, that actually pierce the flesh in the snout and then, and then kind of twirl in this uh, kind of curl in this torturous manner. That's kind of messed up design, man. Yeah, well, messed up or perfect in its own way. But but that's kind of the interesting thing here, right? The, the, the unicorn being a creature of myth mm-hmm. is perfectly uh, symmetrical and, uh, and, 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 and pure in its, uh, its composition. But in reality, reality is asymmetrical. Reality is a place where tusks grow through lips and out of the top of a pig's snout. That's right, nature. It smashes through walls. It breaks down barriers. It punctures through lips. Yeah. Now, generally when this happens in the narwhal, the tusk grows out of the left canine while the right canine stays embedded in the mouth. And otherwise, narwhals don't have any teeth protruding into the mouth. So they don't use teeth for eating or chewing. They suck their food up into their mouth like a vacuum cleaner or like sperm whales. And I think this fact about the the, the tusk is actually just a huge fang. It is a huge tooth is uh, probably the reason why so many of the people publishing academic research on narwhals seem to be not just marine zoologists and biologists, but dentists. Huh. Now, this beautiful sea unicorn, you might tend to assume, okay, what is a tusk like that good for? It's got to be a weapon, right? Right, yeah, because we think of, I mean, if you think of the unicorn, you imagine the unicorn skewering its enemies with that thing, right? Oh, wait, do you imagine that? What do you imagine the unicorn uses its horn for, if anything? Uh, well, actually, you would probably assume that it uses it to purify water and to heal uh, noble adventurers in their quest. Uh, but you have seen, I think it was uh, Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods, where yeah. the, we, There's a character that is, is skewered by the rampaging unicorn. Yeah, as the uh, Cenobites and all of the, you know, <laughs> guys from the Strangers with the creepy masks and the zombies and everything are running about. There's also a majestic unicorn that comes packed with its own rays of light, but it gallops <laughs> down the hall and just impales a guy with its horn. Yeah, but otherwise you would imagine that a unicorn's horn would would just heal people and maybe shoot laser beams. Yeah, exactly. So you probably think, narwhal, it's got to be a spear, right? It works as a spear. It's a perfect natural spear for skewering prey. And these are, of course, carnivorous marine mammals. They eat fish, they eat squid, things like that. Things that you could technically skewer if you wanted to. But you should think about the logistics of this for a second before you think that that's how it's used. Because imagine how precise you would have to be to aim a spear that's nine feet long attached rigidly to the front of your face to skewer a fish that's small enough for you to eat. Then on top of that, think about if you speared a fish, how would you get it? You'd have to somehow get it off of the end of your nine-foot spear and you don't have hands. Right. Like, and say it got stuck halfway. Like this this Uh sort of shish kebab... uh, 
uh, method of hunting, there are a number of problems with it. You got a rotting fish stuck in front of your face. It's yeah. always like flying off in your eyes. It's like, what if you wore a ring toss uh, on your, your head and then someone threw a donut onto it and you did not have arms with which to retrieve the donut, how would you possibly eat it? That is a wonderful analogy. That's, that's perfect. <laughs> it's a problem that, that many of us uh, face in our real life. Well, if it's not actually used for spearing, what is this tusk actually for? If you know, Obviously, the narwhal didn't evolve it so that the narwhal could be killed and have its tusk harvested and sold to gullible buyers in the medieval European you know, luxury market. So one hypothesis is that it was used as an ice pick, right? They live in Arctic regions where the water is often covered with pack ice. So you might think that maybe the tusk was used for breaking up ice cover. But I couldn't find any evidence that anybody has ever observed this. So I think this is a, a lower rung hypothesis. But it, it, like, it's still, I can see where one might wonder if this is the, the, the reason. Because if it's not used to manipulate... Uh, prey, then perhaps it is used to manipulate the environment. Well, whether or not it's used to manipulate prey in some way, mm. we'll get to that in a second. So another big thought is that, oh, it's got to be a product of sexual selection, right? Oh, yes. Females are selecting for males with larger and larger tusks over generations because they're attracted to it. Oh, and we already mentioned that the the females sometimes, but don't always have them. Right. This is primarily male narwhals. So anytime there is a strong sexual dimorphism like that, you got to think that sexual selection probably plays some kind of role. And Darwin thought this was a good explanation. It remains commonly accepted among the hypotheses for the purpose of the narwhal's tusk. And it's suspected that this does play some role for several reasons, including observed behavior. Uh, according to Dr. Kristen Ledra, who I mentioned earlier, in the summer months, uh, researchers will observe male narwhals crossing their tusks and making a strange kind of whistling sound, often with a female between them. And she says, quote, such behavior might help maintain dominance hierarchies or help young males develop skills necessary for performance in adult sexual roles. So there's some kind of some kind of showdowns some kind of macho mm -hmm. display going on here where you're dueling with your tusks, like I mentioned in the opening scenario. All right. And this is something we see that, that definitely matches up with, with other creatures of the earth. Absolutely. Uh, lots of creatures that have horns, in fact. Mm -hmm. The horns are involved in male kind of hierarchy and dominance displays. Now, another piece of evidence that there's a sexual role here, something in sexual selection and mate choice, is that tusk length seems to be correlated with sexual virility in males. Uh, according to a paper published in Marine Mammal Science in 2014 by Trish Kelly et al., quote, reproductive tracts from beluga and narwhal were collected between 1997 and 2008 from five beluga stocks and two narwhal stocks across the Canadian Arctic. And what did they find about the narwhals? Well, quote, a significant relationship was found between narwhal tusk length and testes mass, indicating the tusk may be important in female mate choice. So if you're a male narwhal, there's a general correlation that the longer your tusk, the larger your testicles. All right. Well, so this sounds like a, a, a strong theory then. Right. So this is a good one. It still remains very much on the table. But also marine zoologists have continued to wonder, could there be some kind of direct adaptive value as well that plays a role in survival? Uh, so to mention a couple more things, there's a question of, is this tusk used as a sense organ? 
there is some indication that, yes, it is used as a sense organ. Uh, Martin Nuia of Harvard's School of Dental Medicine has done extensive research on the narwhal over the years, and he and his colleagues found that the narwhal's tusk is full of these millions of sensitive nerve endings. It's a very sensitive organ, kind of like an inside-out tooth. Huh. And Nuia has demonstrated more recently through experiments that uh, – in vivo experiments, actually, that these neural pathways allowing the tusks to transmit information back to the brain, apparently – they're used to transmit at least information about changes in the salinity of water. Huh. Well, I do have to say that the mere detail uh, that there are all these nerve endings in, in the tusk, it makes it seem like it would be a very poor choice of uh, – of uh, of saber for a duel, right? You, you know? wouldn't you wouldn't want like a sword that feels pain. Yeah, like hey, uh, do you have one of these giant inside out teeth like I do? Let's start bumping them together <laughs> and, and see how we feel about it. <laughs> and yet they do it. Yeah. One last interesting thing: is it used in hunting? Even if it's not used as a spear for skewering. There are some indications that yes. Now, one hypothesis is that the tusk somehow aids in echolocation. Narwhals, like a lot of other marine mammals, have sound-based prey location strategies and they map their surroundings and follow food animals by making these buzzing, clicking sounds that echo throughout the water and then bounce back to the narwhal carrying information about what's nearby. Narwhals have very effective and very sensitive echolocation, so it's possible the tusk could play some kind of role in helping sharpen this sound-based mapping skill. It is kind of an antenna, yeah. in a way. Yeah, uh, could, could be possible, but we don't know that yet. But what about as a more direct offensive weapon for hunting? Obviously, the spearing theory doesn't work. But just recently in 2017, a group of Canadian researchers captured for the first time ever drone footage of male narwhals using their tusks for hunting, not as spears, but as a kind of stun baton. Huh. So the narwhals were tracking a school of Arctic cod in this footage from overhead. And as they pursued the prey... They would position their tusk tips alongside a cod and then give the cod a good solid whack with the tusk, which appeared to stun the fish, and then the fish would stop moving, and then the narwhal would swoop in and suck the fish into its mouth. Okay, so this is interesting. It kind of it kind of like would, would, would pop up behind the fish, reach up with its uh, its tusk, and then just give it a good whack, uh-huh. just enough to, to, um, to, to throw it off so that it can then suck it in. Exactly. Now, this tap hunting strategy can't be essential to narwhal hunting survival, right? Because how would the tuskless females eat? Uh, But it looks like this might be some kind of supplemental predatory strategy. It's like, you know, it's gilding the lily food acquisition-wise. But one thing that I think is interesting is that the narwhal tusk, while a fake unicorn horn that did not actually have magical properties, I think in the biological sense is in fact quite magical. Look at all of these properties it to some degree may have or probably has. It may have this powerful role in signaling sexual selection traits. It may play a role in displaying dominance for males over each other. It does appear to play some role in hunting. It may play a role in sensing the environment. That is fascinating, yeah. And it does remind us of uh, the, the situation with any organism that is going to um, have, an, uh, have a, a tusk or a horn or some sort of notable appendage. Like, there has to be a reason. Uh, th- there has to be a, a, an advantage in having it. Otherwise, it would make no sense for that much energy to go into its growth. Exactly. And so I think the male narwhal's tusk is actually a, a wonderful example of like a, a pluripotent adaptation, a thing where we're searching for the one thing it does, but actually the more we look, the more it looks like there are a lot of things it does. It's mm. a magic bag of tricks. Ah. 
All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss uh, a few more natural world organisms that have something like a unicorn horn. So in the first episode, we talked a good bit about bulls. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't think we really have to, to go into that all that much. But basically the idea being... If you had a depiction of a bull that uh, was a, was a profile and made it look like it had one horn, then that could be the origin of your unicorn. Uh, you could also, uh, of course, just have uh, have tales of actual one horned animals, such as the rhinoceros. Ah, oh, of course. And uh, and and we we do find lots of uh, early accounts, depictions of rhinos. Uh, one that I came across, eleventh uh, century Arab polymath. Al Baruni wrote of a unicorn, quote, of the build of a buffalo with black scaly skin, a dewlap, and a single horn bent upwards, which sounds a lot like a rhino. Yeah, especially like an Indian rhino, which has the one nose horn. Yeah. Now, another theory, and I've I've mentioned this one on the show a couple of times, is that perhaps all these tales of the unicorn, and and I'm not saying I I really buy this 100%, but I think it's an interesting theory, is that essentially we're describing traditions and uh, and, and sort of, um, you know, race memories, I guess you would say, of the elasmotherium. Now, the elasmotherium itself could not really appear in history, right? Well, that was the thinking for a long time. That you would have to just be going upon uh, like fossil remains of the elasmotherium, mm-hmm. because uh, pre- previously we es- uh, most estimates placed it outside of the two hundred thousand year run of human history. Uh, but uh, there was a recent study that uh, that t- took place that looked at uh, the the possible origins of the elasmotherium in modern day um, Kazakhstan uh, that would place it uh, merely twenty nine thousand years ago. So this would uh, this was a, the study published in the American Journal of Applied Sciences. So that gives us a little more room for consideration of the elasmotherium, like actual human encounters with the elasmotherium is providing some basis for our unicorn myths. So they could at least contribute to oral folklore archetypes, uh, even if this is before written history. Right. But again, I think the problem with this is you're kind of going to elaborate lengths to to uh, establish human traditions and human tales of single-horned animals when you have other single-horned animals that you don't have to uh, you don't have to, to do as much math to figure out you can just stick with the Indian rhino yeah. as the example of of a beast that people were seeing and then word of is uh, is is traveling across the world you know I'm also very convinced by the possibility that it was inspired by misinterpretations of art the more yeah. I think about that Friedrich Schrader idea that Somebody saw representations of animals depicted in profile with two horns Mm -hmm. that were rendered as just one horn because they were on top of each other in the perspective from which they were drawn. And that created the idea of one horn beasts lying somewhere out there elsewhere in the world. I think that that seems highly possible to me. Now, that being said, there is another prehistoric creature that we can look to as a as a potential uh, precursor to the unicorn. And that is a prehistoric uh, pig genus from the Miocene epoch, that's 23 to 5.3 million years ago, uh, that was found in Eurasia, and the males had a mono horn. It's called the Cubinoceros, and it does, in fact, look like a large prehistoric pig with a unicorn horn. I mean, a unicorn horn is maybe uh, uh, exaggerating a bit, but it had a single horn-like protrusion from the top of its head. 
uh, as well as I believe a couple of smaller ones near its eyes, but one that definitely stands out. Yeah, in the illustrations and skeletons that I've seen of this, it is much smaller than the unicorn horn is generally Mm -hmm. uh, understood to be. Like it's more like kind of a a big nub over the eyes. Mm -hmm. But if you were just if you're just looking for examples of unicorn-like skulls in uh, the fossil record, then this is a creature you can point at and gawk at. Uh, now, if you uh, spend your time at any uh, of the uh, major aquariums out there, then you may have encountered the unicorn fish. Uh, th- this Wait, is, is, that, is that different than somebody just thinking a narwhal is a fish? No, no. These are, these are actual fish, uh, and you'll, you'll find them in a number of aquariums. They have them at the Georgia Aquarium, for instance. And specifically, we're talking 17 species of the Nassau genus, and they all have a frontal horn uh, that protrudes from their forehead. It really looks like a nose. Mm-hmm. It, re- it looks like a – they look like snooty butlers. <laughs> they, <laughs> they do they, kind of. They've got their nose turned up and they're like, oh, riffraff. <laughs> uh, of course, when we look at it, we have the same situation with the narwhal. Why is this here? It's it's so large. There's a lot of energy going into the, the production of this, this, this horn-like protrusion. Uh, what purpose does it play? Well – it's not used as a weapon or a swimming aid. Uh, it seems like it's probably used as a, just a courtship feature, uh, used by males as a social and reproductive uh, uh, feature. Uh, and, and it, along with other parts of their body, change colors during their courtship displays. I think a lot of the times you see a horn on the head or a horn on the face or something like that, a major function of it will be some kind of uh, sexual competition or mate selection kind of role. Right. But then the added feature here is though is that it changes colors. Yeah. And in a way, that's that's so unicorn. That's that's what I want to see my fantasy unicorns doing, uh, whipping out the, you know, whipping their magical uh, horns around in the air and watching all sorts of crazy colors display through it. Well, it's like the Lisa Frank unicorn when you tilt your, uh, what are those things called? You, your Trapper Keeper you know the thing where you tilt it and the colors change? What is that? Oh, um, like with glitter? Like there's a the, there's there's liquid in there? No, don't you remember these things? They were everywhere in the 90s. There'd be like a plastic covering of some kind of image, and when you tilt it up and down and the light would shift, the colors on it would change. Oh, like a holographic image? image? Maybe. Hmm. Maybe it was just magic. It was just pure unicorn magic, Joe. That's obviously what it was. <laughs> Now, we have some other unicorn-like creatures just to, to roll through here. Uh, there's the Texas unicorn mantis. Uh, this is a mantid species with a horn-like protuberance on its head. It's popular with pet owners because they prey on smaller insects, and so they're, they don't cannibalize each other as much. Mm-hmm. But other than that, no real magical unicorn properties that I uh, could uh, uh, uncover. Now, we don't think that inspired unicorn legends. No, no. <laughs> the, uh, it's quite the, the, the reversal in a way. It's like someone saw it and they said, hey, that mantis kind of looks like a unicorn. Uh-huh. Let's call it such. And then in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a curious callback to our discussion of the movie Legend, mm-hmm. you have the goblin spiders of the genus unicorn. Thank you for taking us here, Robert. <laughs> and uh, they, these uh, spiders, uh, these are like jumping spiders, and they uh. have really interesting examples of sexual dimorphism, including these male uh, uh, clypeal horns or uh, you know, projections on their heads that occur between the eyes and the jaws. So it's more kind of like a nose. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And it, it again, is not used uh, in any way like a unicorn horn. Uh, then you also have unicorn shrimp, and uh, these are just 
shrimp that have an elongated horn-like rostrum that extends in front of its eyes. Now, other crustaceans have this pointy bit as well. It's just elongated in this species, thus the nod to the unicorn, or actually its, uh, its, its scientific name is a nod to the narwhal. It is Plesionica narval. So Plesionica corpse whale. <laughs> yes. And people putting that slime all over everything now. <laughs> Got to bring the bad corpse whale vibes in on some honest shrimp. God, the idea of, of corpse whales being sighted from a Viking ship, it's, it's like that's, that's some, some serious uh, Norse energy there that I want to uh, see reflected uh, in uh, one of these Viking TV shows. Somebody should create a really good like medieval Viking water horror movie. It's like the cross between Dagon and Vikings. <laughs> Night of the Corpse Whales. Yeah. You know, as long as we're thinking about real live creatures that could have inspired unicorn legends, one thing we haven't really talked about is anomalies. Oh, yes, like uh, birth defects and, um, and injuries. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that we've just sort of been assuming is that if there were some kind of creature that inspired unicorn legends, it was probably like a creature as it normally typically appears. But... Just one example I want to mention, in 2008, an apparently mutant deer with a single horn in the middle of the top of its head was found in a nature preserve in Italy. Uh, There were news reports about it at the time. They were calling it the unicorn deer. It was, you know, one of those weird little uh, splashes in the press about here's an odd animal. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like this is how this breed of unicorn is. It just happened to be a single individual deer with a mutation. Which I think could easily be part of the inspiration too. I mean, mutations like that probably occurred in some small number of cases throughout history and people see something like that and they think it's some rare, unusual animal that there – and then there are other ones like it out there. Or perhaps you're a goat herder and you uh, you observe this uh, birth defect in one of your goats. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, you, you know that this creature wasn't going to survive and that this is essentially the appearance of a – uh, of, of an unfit goat, but then mm. perhaps you cannot help but imagine what if a creature like this were healthy? What if the what if this uh, creature were to survive and thrive in our world? What kind of fabulous beast would that be? What kind of virgin could I use to betray it and kill it? <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Joe, let's take one more break, and when we come back, uh, we will talk of the wizard and the unicorn. All right, we're back. So, Robert, do you remember ads, TV commercials in the 1980s for the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus Tours? Yes. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. So, I actually had a gigantic Ringling Brothers poster in my room when I was a kid, even though I don't remember ever actually going to the circus. (laughs) I think I got the poster as a gift. That's just one of those weird kind of gifts you get when you're a kid that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess there's still gifts like that adults give, right? It's probably best, I think, that I didn't make those memories of the Ringling Brothers uh, circus itself because if you go back and watch those commercials now, my God, they are frightening. And I honestly do not want to give in too much to the clowns or scary meme because, hey, I'm (laughs) pro-clowns actually. Uh, You know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with clowns. I think people have leaned too hard into the clowns are creepy thing. Yeah, I feel like I've probably gone on this tangent before, but my main points are always clowns are for kids. Mm -hmm. They're not for the grownups. And it's the grownups that are creating all the creepy clown things because it's the grownups who can't help but twist their innocence of, of childhood into something warped. It's the, it's the grownups who hunt the unicorn. 
Uh, and then also there are so many clowns. Like if you're basing this on like old footage of creepy clowns, such as from this uh, commercial, uh-huh. you're not basing them on say clowns that are currently going to hospitals right. and helping kids work through uh, uh, you know their recovery. Yeah, I think the all clowns are creepy thing comes out of this. I, I don't know o- overpowering nihilistic energy of irony culture run amok. Yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah, not all clowns are that bad. Come on, give them a chance. But these clowns in these commercials, I'm sorry, they're just these armies of <laughs> dingy nightmare clowns that look like when you see them moving and like looking into the camera, it seems like the Unsolved Mysteries theme should play in the background. It's just terrible. Well, they were, I guess, kind of nostalgic clowns even then, right? They yeah. were they were supposed to look like clowns of a of a of a bygone age. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to insult those actual performers. I think a lot of it is probably like the colors and how it comes through in a TV commercial of mm-hmm. the 1980s. Nothing looks good in a TV commercial of the 1980s. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure in the 80s, like McDonald's probably tasted good. But you look at those commercials, it's like, ah, get it away. <laughs> but anyway, we're, we're getting totally sidetracked. And that's my fault. In the mid 1980s, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus debuted a pretty weird new animal superstar. They, you might remember, they'd have like a big elephant for this tour or something like that. And in uh, 1985, a supposed real life unicorn named Lancelot <laughs> became the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey uh, big big attraction. And you can look up pictures of Lancelot today. He looks like a pale white fluffy goat with long, luxurious hair and a huge brown single horn sticking up from the top of his head, roughly about a foot or so long. Well, that sounds like many depictions of the unicorn. It sounds essentially like the unicorn that we see in one of the the tapestries we discussed in the last episode. Exactly right. Is this this nice beardy white goat with a big horn in the middle of its head. And the thing is, the horn looks kind of real. So the Ringling Brothers' official story uh, for how they acquired Lancelot the Unicorn was interesting. Of course, after they started displaying this unicorn, quote, in shows and commercials, animal rights groups got kind of suspicious. But a circus spokesperson Joe Gold told reporters in March 1985, quote, It's a living unicorn that appeared in Houston, Texas in July. It wandered up to the tent and circus producer Kenneth Feld was there to see it. It's magical. Even Heather, the unicorn's trainer, says she can feel the energy every time she touches its horn. Well, that's that's some great uh, PR copy right there. That's the official yeah. story. <laughs> <laughs> and that Heather, the trainer who could feel the energy, uh, is circus performer Heather Harris, who you'll see beside the unicorn creature in lots of press photos. And so in 1985, she told a Pennsylvania newspaper called The Morning Call – and that Lancelot, quote, arrived mysteriously. I don't know whether it flew here or whether it took a train, but it seems to be very comfortable and at ease here. So it was basically drawn to the circus. Like it was lost in this world and knew that this was the one place it could find a home. That was their official story, that it was literally a magic creature who just appeared in Houston, Texas. But let's say for a second we don't believe Joe Gold's story that the unicorn is real magic and that it just (laughs) wandered up to the Ringling Brothers tent in Texas in the summer of 84. What is this thing? Now, the pretty obvious answer would be that it is a goat with a fake horn strapped to its head, right? It looks like a goat except it's got a huge horn in the middle of its head. You know, you could probably create that with a strap or some tape or some glue. 
And in fact, I've looked up videos of circus acts featuring, quote, unicorns more recently, and they're quite obviously just horses with horns strapped to their heads, right? Uh, but if they were going to strap a horn to an animal's head, why didn't they strap a horn to a horse's head? Why do these animals look like goats with single horns? Because you can strap a horn to a horse's head and create a fake unicorn. I've seen one. Yeah. They, they, they at least had one at the Georgia Renaissance Festival. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I took my, my son to see it. He was like, is that a uni- real unicorn? I said, no, it's not. <laughs> but if it's, it, come on, this is Ringling Brothers. Why wouldn't they go full horse? <laughs> yeah, it's not like they don't have a bunch of animals under the tent there. Make it, them all into unicorns. Mysteries abound. Yeah. Well, let's go forward in time. So in the spring of 1985, a group of investigators from the ASPCA, which is an animal rights organization, uh, including one veterinarian, went to see these unicorns at a New York City performance of the circus to figure out what was going on. And the circus actually had four unicorns on staff. Lancelot was the big star with the big horn. But mm-hmm. they also had three other unicorns that were named Galahad, Avalon, and Percival. Okay. All Arthurian legend names. It's curious because I don't re- recall ever encountering a unicorn in Arthurian legend. I could be wrong because there are a lot of different installments of Arthurian legend, yeah. but I do not recall unicorns. Yeah, I don't either. They could be in there, but I, I don't remember that. But anyway, so the investigators, they get there, they're looking at these unicorns, and they're horrified, concluding after inspection that the animals were, quote, farm goats with surgically implanted horns. Oh, That's like the worst possible answer, really. It is. But, of course, the circus still maintained that they were real magic unicorns who had appeared of their own accord in Houston. And Ringling Brothers Vice President Alan Bloom said at the time, quote, They are the only unicorns in the world. They're priceless. They are all males, and I believe they're brothers. We don't know how they reproduce. (laughs) I think they're between three and five years old. But because unicorns are ageless, they may be hundreds of years old. We just don't know. So this was a real response to essentially charges of animal cruelty. Yeah, (laughs) that's what they they were like, maintaining that it's real magic. Uh, And so to prove the horns were some kind of surgical implant, John Kohlberg, the president of the ASPCA at the time, and other animal rights activists wanted to have the goats x-rayed, right? They figured like, okay, if this Mm -hmm. is just an implant, we can x-ray the goat's skull, see that the horn is not actually attached to the skull, and then, you know, we'll be able to show that they have been cruelly altered. And the circus initially refused. And then in 1985, in April, Kohlberg said he gave them 24 hours uh, for a good faith aid to their investigation. But if they didn't aid in the investigation, they would investigate legal remedies. So you got this showdown, right? You got mm-hmm. the animal rights people saying, I think you have hurt a goat. And then you've got the circus people saying, real magic unicorn. This <laughs> is such a ridiculous uh, situation uh, to, 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 to find ourselves in. Well, then the circus responded and things got more interesting. That same month, the AP had an article I read that reported on a press conference that Ringling Brothers held on the unicorn issue, which included an X-ray. So they got two doctors from the University of Pennsylvania to attest to the animal's good health and its state. Uh, Dr. Charles Reed, who is a professor of radiology, and Dr. William Donowick, who is a professor of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania Animal Hospital. And both professors apparently agreed that the animal was technically a unicorn. Huh. 
Reed's radiographs apparently showed that the horn was not just implanted on the goat's skin, but was fully attached to the bone and, quote, it is an integral part of the animal's skull. So the horn that was in the middle of the head was fused to the goat's skull, not just like a thing surgically sewn onto the skin of the skull. Well, that's a relief. Right, but how about the unicorn thing? So Donowick told reporters, quote, it's a unicorn. That's what you call an animal with one horn. <laughs> a reporter asked, how about a rhinoceros? Donowick said, that's a unicorn too. Well, <laughs> it, it, technically, in a way, yes. Reporter asks, was the unicorn a goat on the day it was born? Donowick says, I don't know. Reed says, I wasn't there. <laughs> Well, now they're just so, getting into semantics. Yeah. So circus dudes were, I'm sure, obviously giddy about this. Alan Bloom, the, the Ringling Brothers guy, was apparently having reporters feed the animal rose petals during the press conference. So come on. That's just bribery, right? If you get a goat, even a normal goat, to eat rose petals out of your hand, you're going to say whatever they want you to yeah, say. Yeah, you're going to be overcome by their, 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 the charm of their strange eyes. So I'm not sure exactly how they got these credentialed experts to play along so well in terms of their framing of the issue right? Well, yeah, it's sure it's a unicorn. But it does at least seem true that the horns of these goat unicorns were not just something that had been implanted on the head, but were actual single horns attached to the skull. So what happened? Well, here we get to the truth, and the truth is known to those who seek it. I think first I should just give it to you straight, then we'll back up and explain. The real unicorns of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus of the 1980s were created by a wizard from California. <laughs> a literal wizard, not as in like Mr. Wizard, but, it, but as in a man who is the headmaster of a wizardry academy. This wizard is known as Oberon Zell Ravenheart, born in 1942 as Timothy Zell and sometimes throughout his life just going simply as Oz. Well, the one would expect a modern wizard to go by various names, yes. There is actually a really great short documentary about him that came out within the past couple of years called The Wizard Oz. That title makes it kind of hard to Google. Mm -hmm. uh, but The Wizard Oz, not The Wizard of Oz. And having watched it, I can say about this guy, he's one of those people who you can tell just just committed. It just said, <laughs> I'm just going to plunge straight into a life of profound and unapologetic weirdness <laughs> and just, do just doesn't really look back. Uh, so a few facts about Oberon Zell Ravenheart just to get a flavor of the guy. In, in the documentary, uh, Oz talks about how he grew up being fascinated by Greek myths and pagan stories full of magic. And he tells of when he was a child, he would sometimes at night run outside naked on nights with full moons. And he believed that he like had telepathic connections with his pet snake. And around 1961 to 1962, he co-founded the Church of All Worlds, which is a neo-pagan religion perhaps an example of a hyper-real religion. Let me hmm. know what you think, Robert. It was named after a fictional religion in Robert Heinlein's A Stranger in a Strange Land. And he has since served in a leadership role or as, quote, primate of this religious organization. Uh, in, in fact, I believe some of the material that we, we looked at for hyper-real religions did reference this, uh, this group. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I don't think we spent much time with it just because uh, I, don't, I don't think uh, you or I had much grounding in uh, Robert Heinlein's uh, uh, work. Yeah, I'm underread on Heinlein. Yeah, I, I read Starship Troopers, and I think that's the only thing that I have, uh, have read by him. 
Well, Oz describes this real version of the religion as a sort of, uh, I think, as a sort of gathering place for all religious and mythological traditions, sort of without judgment or views of superiority of any one tradition. And he actually claims he was the first person to adopt the terms pagan and neo-pagan to describe these emerging nature religions of the 1960s. Uh, part of his personal theology is that all life on Earth is not actually separate, but is part of a single unified organism called Gaia or Mother Earth. Huh? You know, I th- I think Gaia theory is one of our uh, is one of the topics on our to do list. Yeah. Yeah. I think it wouldn't be exactly that proposition. It would be something kind of parallel. Yeah. More recently, he runs a wizardry academy with a virtual campus on Second Life. And in in the past, he has done cryptozoological investigations, including a trip to an island off New Guinea to track down an alleged string of mermaid sightings. (laughs) And the creature turned out to be a dugong. Oh, well, that makes makes sense that it would. The dugong, of course, being uh, um, uh, 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 essentially the, the open sea manatee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, all of this is is weird and wonderful, Joe, but it all sounds kind of obvious given that you led with the fact that this man created unicorns. So tell me, <laughs> how did uh, the Wizard Oz create unicorns? Well, obviously, as a person interested in myths and magic, Oz had a healthy appetite for mythological creatures, including the unicorn. He and his wife, who was a woman named Morning Glory, uh, in the late 1970s, they had this fascination with unicorns that led them in 1979 to initiate a project of creating living unicorns. And they did this after they read about the research of an American biologist named W. Franklin Dove. Now, W. Franklin Dove was a University of Maine biologist who lived from 1897 to 1972, and Dove spent a lot of his career on topics related to agriculture, like animal production, but he also tackled things like the phenomena of food acceptance and food rejection, which I think is an interesting thing I've barely even considered as its own field of science, like what causes an animal to eat or to turn down food offered to it. That is interesting. That may, may be something we'll have to return to in a future episode. Yeah. In his work on animal production, Dove had this hypothesis about the growth of horns in livestock, in animals like goats and cows. He wanted to prove that instead of growing directly out of the skull, horns began as buds in the soft tissue of the skin over the skull, and then only later in development fused with the skull to lock in place. So in the 1930s, Dove demonstrated this by performing surgery on a one-day-old male calf. And in this procedure, Dove removed the two horn buds from their original location at the two sides of the top of the head and grafted them together side-by-side in the center of the calf's head. And he predicted that if the buds were moved before they could attach themselves to the skull, the developing calf would grow horns wherever the buds had been placed, in this case in a single unified growth in the middle of the forehead, and it worked. The calf developed and grew as a normal healthy bull, but with a single huge horn in the middle of its head, just like a unicorn. So what we have here is not quite the, the like the nightmare scenario of someone surgically implanting a fake horn onto a goat, but something that is a little more manipulative. 
Right. It's the idea of removing a couple of patches of skin mm -hmm. that have primordial cell lines within them that will tend to develop into horn tissue as the animal grows up, but grafting them into different places before they connect and continue their horn growth, before, especially before they fuse to the bone. Okay. So this is just a form of, just a form of body modification, really. Exactly. And this is the procedure that Oberon Zell Ravenheart picked up on to create his goat unicorn. So there's actually a patent in 1980 awarded to one Timothy Zell. Remember, that was his birth name. Uh -huh. And it's a patent for a surgical procedure to produce unicorn goats. Now, there, I think it, there are some highly questionable claims within the patent language. Like one, So he describes this process, which clearly worked in creating the single horned goat. But he also says stuff like, quote, Thereafter, the resulting horns grow as one and connect with the frontal portion of the skull directly over the pineal gland to render the unicorn of higher intelligence and physical <laughs> attributes. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Once you start tying the pineal gland into the uh, the whole unicorn horn scenario, um, I begin to have questions. Yeah, so I think that's, that's a little bit overstepping, but there might be some interesting things to consider about how it affects mental development. But we'll come back to that in just a minute. So when Oz and his wife, Morning Glory, created these unicorn goats, first they toured with them appearing at like Renaissance fairs and conventions. So Robert, you mentioned you saw a horse at a Renaissance fair. Yeah. A horse a horse with a horn strapped on. Yes, yes. I did see a, a false unicorn there. Uh, apparently, if you'd gone to this fair in the early 1980s, you might have seen a literal one-horned goat. Huh. But then in the 1984-1985 in the period, they first leased them out to the circus. And a quote from this documentary, Oz says, quote, Everybody has their own creative way of making a living in the country. A lot of people do arts and crafts type things. Some people do farming. We raise unicorns. It's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> Somebody has to do it. Yes. Now, of course, the circus act couldn't last forever, and uh, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey leadership—they like to rotate the main attractions fairly often. So, in 1987, Feld claimed that Lancelot had been retired, and the circus company moved on to their next big attraction, which was a huge elephant named King Tusk. Okay, a little more traditional, really, for them. Yeah. So what happened to the goats? What happened to the unicorns? Well, uh, Oberon and Morning Glory stopped creating goat unicorns around 1990, and they kept them for a long time. Apparently, the last one passed away in 2005. But that's the story of how we ended up with real single-horned goats. It's apparently a fairly straightforward surgical procedure that can be done in the first week of the goat's life and allows them to grow a single horn like a unicorn horn. And he patented it because he wanted to to create a franchise of I, unicorn goats. I'm or, not sure why he patented it. Or he just wanted it. credit. He wanted credit for the procedure. I don't know the huh. answer there. Um, anyway, yeah, that would be interesting to know. But uh, so there were some interesting observations linked to this. One of them is that there are some reports that having a single horn actually changed the behavior and personality of these altered goats and cattle. And that makes me think kind of all uh, about the like weird personality or moral traits attributed to the unicorn that would obviously separate them from other normal four-legged beasts. 
Dove reported that his unicorn bull – remember, this was the guy from the 30s, mm-hmm. uh, Franklin Dove. He reported that his unicorn bull became the dominant member of the herd and faced very few challenges from rivals for dominance. At the same time, it seemed to be of a very calm temperament. And Dove also reported that the unicorn bull used its horn as a tool to like lift fences and pass under them or as a weapon during fights when it had them. And that makes me think about – the ways in which our morphology can shape our mentality. In what ways does the shape of an animal's body and anatomical equipment change what kind of being you are down to your very character and personality, even if it doesn't change the physical structure of the brain? I mean, it's it's a complicated scenario that he suggests here because it's it's almost as if he's he's making a case that the, the unicorn form of the goat is kind of the ideal form. It's the it's the the higher form. And if that were true, then why isn't it the form of the goat? Why are not all goats uh, uh, single horned animals? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you might wonder if if it were actually adaptive, would um, I don't know if you could somehow select for a gene toward single horned mm-hmm. goats. That seems. Like a thing, I mean, that wouldn't happen in this case because it's not a gene for it; it's a surgical procedure. Right. But say you know you had a goat with a mutation that had just one horn in the middle of its head, like that deer we talked about. Uh, you know, would that goat actually have a survival advantage compared to others? I, I don't see any reason to think it necessarily would, but maybe who knows? Hmm. Um, you got to wonder. It's it. If, I guess that the thing is, if there was a case to be made that this is the superior form of the goat, it is a form that is obtained through body modification. Yeah. Which we can, you know, we could probably make some interesting comparisons uh, to various human customs of body mod- modification. Yeah. Especially the more established uh, body modification rituals. Uh, but you don't really see much of that in the animal world. Well, in the same way that much human body modification is cultural, I Mm -hmm. mean, I wonder if it would depend on sort of the personality of the individual herd or pack. Yeah. What all leads to the question, uh, should we even be trying to make unicorns? Is it, I mean, ultimately by making them? (laughs) I mean, I, I think there is a case to be made that this early modification to goats was not necessarily as cruel as like an adult modification implanting a horn out of nothing would have been. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't really see that there's any reason to do any kind of unnecessary surgeries on animals. And then on the other hand, uh, like this is not a, a unicorn in the spirit of the unicorn. Like this is a creature that is held captive by a circus. Right. Like, the unicorn need, needs to be a thing that is not, uh, you know, engineered. It needs to be a thing that is uh, that is wild and free of human interference. Remember plenty, it cannot be taken alive. Yeah. And and likewise, it cannot be, be made. Like to, to make it uh, in captivity, to, to make it a thing of captivity uh, betrays the whole idea. I mean, at least if it's a birth defect, then it is kind of, it's an anomaly. It's a natural anomaly yeah. that you uh, may get to witness, but it is not something that you're just manufacturing and putting a patent on. Yeah, I agree. While I think the story is incredibly interesting, I do hope uh, we don't give the impression that you you should be going out trying to engineer normal animals to become unicorns. Eh, there's no reason to. Unicorns, you know, they can stay in the myths. That's right. And, you know, like as you said, feeding a goat, a normal goat, rose petals or, or any uh, vegetable, uh, that's going to be pleasant in and of itself. No need to uh, drag myth into the whole scenario. <laughs> All right. So there you have it. 
uh, unicorns of the natural world as well as unicorns of the mythic world. We have covered both in this week's episodes. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the ride. Uh, you can check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes as well as links out to our various social media accounts. And I'll remind everybody uh, to rate and review the show wherever you have the opportunity to do so. It's a wonderful way to support what we do. Big thanks, as always, to our awesome audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, or to suggest future topics for the show, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.